Good morning. Good to see you. <laughs> a few weeks ago, we talked about credibility, something that is a, a growing challenge for those of us who follow Jesus in our culture today. And we, we talked about credibility and how we maintain credibility when we're questioned or challenged or criticized, and, and often how we respond uh, to those moments uh, speaks a lot, not just about us, but about Christ himself. And if you're with us, you might remember uh, uh, this particular portion of scripture we looked at where Paul said, you yourselves are our letter, um, written on our hearts, known and read by everyone. You show that you are a letter from Christ, the result of our ministry. Uh, written not with ink, but with the spirit of the living God, and not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. And we're going to unpack that a little bit more today and over these next couple of weeks. But here, here was the big idea last week. Credibility is gained when we serve people for the sake of Jesus, for the sake of the kingdom, and for the sake of others. It's when you and I roll up our sleeves and get engaged in the lives of people in, in meaningful ways, loving and serving, that our lives take on, take on credibility and, and the imprint that we're making upon the people's, of, people's lives that they become the letters that you and I are writing upon, that Christ is writing upon. And we saw a couple of weeks ago, I'm just kind of catching us up real quickly, and he gave us a, a remarkable pathway for our ministry to people. And in verse 6, he has made us competent. Uh, we could say he's made us confident. He's made us competent as ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter but of the spirit, for the letter kills but the spirit gives life. And we talked about the fact that this competence that we have, that this confidence it brings into our lives is not reserved for specially gifted or highly skilled people. It's available to all of us. It's, it's something that, that Jesus has made available to every follower of Christ, to all of us. Now, we're going to hunker down on something today in this phrase, the new covenant. And it may be a language that is unfamiliar to some. And we're going to lay some biblical, theological, historical foundations this morning. And in the things that we talk about today are going to unpack the next couple of chapters in, in remarkable ways. And so I'm going to take some time to do it in a thorough way to be sure you and I can develop a, a good understanding of the way Paul uses the new covenant. Now, as you know, the Bible is divided into essentially the way the English Bibles we have is divided into two halves, Old Testament, New Testament. And in general, and I'm being very general here, in general, it represents the nature of life with God before Christ and the nature of life with God after Christ. The old way, the new way, the old covenant, the new covenant. And, and that is just the highest level perspective um, that kind of gives us a frame of reference. And, and so the new covenant is the new way of living made possible by Jesus. And, and as you unpack it throughout the scriptures, in, in, at its core, it's the spirit of God at work in us that produces life change that is meaningful and lasting. And we'll come back to the passage in just a moment. 
Now, the verses we're going to look at this morning, chapter 3, verses 7 through 18, if you have your Bibles with you. Uh, For those who don't, you'll see it up on the screen behind me. The story we're going to look at today is closely connected to an Old Testament story found in Exodus 34. I'm not going to have you turn to it. You can go back and read it later, but I'm going to give you just a, a summary of this passage. In broad strokes, you're already very familiar with the story. Um, you remember Moses climbing Mount Sinai to be given the Ten Commandments. Uh, something we are very familiar with. And, and you go back and you read the story, and it's one of the great stories of the Old Testament. A thick cloud covered Mount Sinai. Uh, people standing at the base of the mountain, a thick cloud covered Mount Sinai, thunder and lightning surrounded the mountain, and smoke billowed from, from the top of the mountain like a furnace. Uh, Exodus describes that it was like the whole mountain was shaking. And, and what, it, what it's describing for us is that God's glory, God's presence was on display in such a spectacular way that it left people terrified. And, and, and the people uh, around the mountain just were, 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 were terrified at God's presence and his glory as it, as it resided and fell on the mountain. Well, Moses was called up into that mountain alone. And, and Moses, as, as you recall, he, he went up to the mountain for 40 days and, and 40 nights, and he was given the, the Ten Commandments that were engraved on two tablets of stone. And, and Moses, after being given uh, the Ten Commandments, he, he came down from the mountain and he found people worshiping a golden calf at an out-of-control festival. And in anger, he broke the tablets into pieces. And, and sometime later, after processing this and God intervening, Moses returned to Mount Sinai with two new tablets, asking for God's forgiveness and and for God's favor. And let me read just a portion of Exodus 34. And then the Lord came down in the cloud. Now it's God and and Moses just kind of one-on-one. The Lord came down in the cloud, and he stood there with Moses, and he proclaimed his name, the Lord. And he passed in front of Moses proclaiming the Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness and rebellion and sin, and yet not leaving the guilty unpunished. And he punishes the children and their children for the sin of their parents of the third and fourth generation. And Moses bowed to the ground at once and worshiped. Lord, if, if I have found favor in your eyes, then let the Lord go with us. And although this is a stiff-necked people, forgive our wickedness and our sin and take us as your inheritance. And then the Lord said, these are the words that I, I wanted to kind of kind of drill into The Lord says, I'm making a covenant with you. There's the old covenant. And before all your people, I will do wonders never before done in any nation in all the world. And the people you live among will see how awesome is the work that I, the Lord, will do for you. And the Ten Commandments, 
uh, became a symbol of sorts for the Old Covenant. And, and, and it represented all the law that was given in the early parts of the Old Testament, but the, but the symbol became the Ten Commandments, written on stone. And when Moses returned from the mountain the second time, we have this remarkable story. It says that his face radiated with the glory of God. And, and, and again, when people saw Moses and they saw the glory just radiant from his face, um, they were afraid to come near him. And so the passage says that, that Moses covered his face with a veil. And uh, when he entered back into the tent of meeting to meet with the Lord, he, he would remove the veil. And when he stepped out of the tent of meeting, he would replace the, mail, uh, the, the, the veil. And, and as he mingled among people, he would wear the veil. And, and people felt more free to be around him because of the veil. Um, it's one of the great, great Old Testament stories. And it provides the historical backdrop to the passage we're going to talk through this morning. Um, and, and as Paul so often did, he began with three questions, beginning in verse 7. Now, if the ministry that brought death, and I'll talk more about that in a second, he's talking about the Old Covenant. If the ministry that brought death, if the Old Covenant, which was engraved on letters of stone, see, now, you're, now you've got the context for the passage. If, if the ministry that brought death, engraved in letters of stone, if it came with glory, this, this spectacular display, smoke and thunder and lightning and the mountain shaking, if it came with glory so that the Israelites could not look steadily at the face of Moses because of its glory, transitory though it was, will not the ministry of the Spirit be even more glorious? And he's beginning to, to establish this contrast. And, and if the ministry that brought condemnation, again, the old covenant was glorious, how much more glorious is the ministry that brings righteousness? You see, the old covenant in its own right was spectacular, and, and Paul would say it was glorious. In other places in the New Testament, it, it perfectly dis, 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 described and, and captured components of the, of the otherness and the greatness and the, and the holiness of God. And, and when Moses provided, uh, uh, was, was provided the Ten Commandments and what became the law that was given to the people of Israel, there was an attractiveness to the Old Covenant that appealed to people's belief that we can do this, we can do this. Quite remarkably, you go back and you, you read the story in Genesis or Exodus 19 to about 33 or 34 and, and God comes down and, and he reveals the covenant with all that it involves to the people and the law and, and it says everybody proclaimed, everything you ask us to do, we will do. We'll obey you, no problem. But they didn't. In fact, they couldn't. And the, the old covenant, while presenting a picture of God's holiness, became a stark reminder that people 
uh, no matter how hard we tried, we're unable to please God. No matter how faithful, no matter how diligent, no matter how prudent, we, we couldn't close the gap and, and we couldn't do even though we, 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 we thought we could. And we, we make every effort to do it. And so Paul described it as a ministry that brought death. It reminded us of our failure. And it brought condemnation. It left us feeling guilty. It was a ministry of death. It was a ministry of condemnation. And, and nor was the old covenant ever intended to be permanent. Um, it was a temporary teacher. It pointed to something far greater, the new covenant. And Paul makes a, a sweeping, summarizing statement in verses 10 and 11. For what was glorious, the old covenant, has no glory now in comparison with the surpassing glory. He says, when you, when you compare the two side by side, as glorious as the old covenant was, when you compare it to the new covenant that Paul is gonna describe, it's as if the old covenant had no glory at all. Um, and if what was transitory, if what was passing away came with glory, the old covenant, how much greater is the glory of that which lasts? And, and he's beginning to introduce us to the greatness, the surpassing greatness and glory of the new covenant as a way of life. And and how pivotal it is to everything you and I understand. Well, Paul pivoted and right away drove into some of the implications in verse 12. Therefore, since we have such a hope, it's the hope of the new covenant, because we have such a hope, Paul says, we are very bold. And we're gonna spend some time here in verse 12. He says, we're not like Moses. Now, now pause for a second and imagine probably the two Two of the three greatest Old Testament characters were Moses, Abraham, and David. And, and it must have stunned people to say, we're, we're not like Moses. And, and, and Paul is going to establish this, this, this contrast. And he says, we're not like Moses, who would put a veil over his face to prevent the Israelites to see uh, the end of what was passing away. Now, th this is a staggering verse. Now, do you remember what Paul said earlier? You show that you are a letter from Christ, the result of our ministry, written not with ink, but with the spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. And in the old covenant, written with ink, tablets, external, on stone, new covenant, the spirit of God working on the hearts of people. In another place, Paul described the hope like this. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. See, the, the issues of, of guilt have been removed because through Jesus Christ, the law of the Spirit who gives life, and Paul's making a very specific contrast between the, old, the law of the old covenant and the law of the new covenant, the law of the tablets of stone and the law of the Spirit, because through Christ, the law of the Spirit who gives life has set you free from the law of sin and death. For what the law... The old covenant was powerless to do because it was weakened by the flesh. 
In other words, no matter how hard we tried, we were unable to obey it. What the law was powerless to do, God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh to be a sin offering. And so he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fully, fully met in us who do not live according to the flesh but according to the spirit. Now that's a mouthful. Paul, Paul is simply saying what the law could not do, Jesus has done. He's given us the spirit of God so that all the, the righteous, holy desires of the law are now possible, not because we are doing it, but because the spirit of God is empowering something within us. And the fundamental transition from the old to the new covenant, the spirit empowers us to do what self-effort is powerless to do. And Paul, so Paul says, so since we have a hope like this, we're very bold. One of my favorite, favorite portions of the New Testament. Uh, the word for bold here, when you and I think of bold, what, what's the, and don't, you don't have to say anything, but think of the initial thing you think of. When we think of bold, we think of someone who is strong and assertive, uh, sometimes overly confident. We, we have a picture in our mind. I'm going to paint a picture that I think Paul is talking about something very different than a contemporary picture we have of, of boldness. You see, the, the, the Greek word for bold describes a way of life that is open, transparent, nothing to hide. Um, and, and he uses Moses in a fascinating way. Um, I don't think he's criticizing Moses, but he uses Moses as, as, as an object lesson of sorts where he says we are not like Moses who would, who would put a veil over his face to prevent the Israelites from seeing the end of what was fading away. See, the veil served as a metaphor. Um, it was a metaphor that pointed to the reality that the old covenant was destined to fade away with the person of Jesus. It was not permanent. But it also was a metaphor for the spiritual life that signaled that we are now free because of Jesus to live authentically before God and authentically before one another. You see, Paul added a detail in 2 Corinthians 3 that is not found in Exodus 34. You go back and you read the story in Exodus 34 of, God, of Moses coming in and out of the tent of meeting and put a veil on because of the glory of God. Paul adds this detail. The glory on Moses' face was fading. Not described in the Old Testament. It's just the glory on Moses' face was fading. When Moses entered the tent and he met with God, and he removed his veil. He discovered something. The glory was fading. Um, and he would spend face, to t face time with God, and, and the glory would return. It's kind of like getting a battery charged. And, and, and he would again radiate the glory of God, and, and when he left the tent, he would... He would put the veil back on his face and, and as he mingled with people with the veil on, the glory faded. Now Moses 
at this time is the only one who's aware that the glory is fading. But as long as he wore the veil, people didn't necessarily know the glory was fading. People seeing him moving in and around, people with the veil on would naturally assume that Moses' face still radiated the glory of God. And yet behind the veil, it was fading. And there's lots of discussion about this image. Uh, Maybe Moses was concerned that if people saw the glory fading, they would somehow lose confidence in the holiness of God. And so maybe the veil was to protect uh, uh, a well-intentioned effort to protect people from just the reputation of God. Or maybe Moses was concerned that if they saw the glory fading, they would lose confidence in him. And maybe it wasn't about protecting the reputation of God. Maybe it was about protecting his own reputation. See, it provided Moses a way of preventing others from seeing what he maybe didn't want them to see. The glory was fading. The veil protected his reputation, his credibility, and, and, and this, this is so consistent with everything that Paul is writing in, in 2 Corinthians 3 and 4. And, and Paul is pointing you and me to something that we're all very familiar with. That we have a closet full of modern day veils that we wear to gain people's approval, respect, and appreciation. Um, I I began listing some of them. Uh, Serving veils. Serving is a wonderful thing. Um, But we can sometimes serve with all the wrong motives, can't we? (laughs) There are Bible knowledge veils. And, And we assume that simply because someone knows a lot of the scriptures that they must be spiritual. They know the Bible. There's moral behavior veils. That if we do the right things and don't do the wrong things, we... We must be spiritual. There's self-righteous veils, and and so often the veils that we wear uh, put us in a posture of of arrogance and pretense with people. There's leadership veils. There's theological conviction veils, and, and the list is long, isn't it? But all of these veils share something in common, and that's how spiritual they can appear and yet allow us to protect ourselves and present something about us that may not be true. And we become skilled, even comfortable, wearing our veils. In an honest moment, we understand that it feels pretty disingenuous. (laughs) You know, we, not unlike Moses, we kind of know what's behind the veil. We know the truth about ourselves. And, 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 and so often this, this, this image that we're portraying um, 
when we're alone in our quiet moments, it feels disingenuous and, and we may even live with some quiet anxiety that someday someone's eventually gonna discover the truth that we're not who we appear to be. In my early story as a pastor, and some of you have been at Grace for years know, know the story well, probably for the first 20 years of my pastoral ministry, I worked hard at protecting and projecting an image of competence and confidence. I wanted people to believe about me that all was well. The problem was it wasn't. Um, I was deeply insecure and I felt deeply inadequate as a pastor. Uh, my, my personal walk with God was shallow and performance-based at best. For many of those years, uh, our marriage wasn't always healthy. But yet I, I had figured out how to mingle among people as a pastor and, and, and not allow them to, to see what was going on in my life and and. and and I think where, where Paul is taking us, I, I lived with some anxiety of being found out at some point. That eventually someone was gonna look behind the veil of my carefully protected pastoral identity and, and discover the brokenness and the emptiness that was so true of my life during that time. Um, and yet and I, I'm gonna share the obvious, pastoral ministry is a, a great place to hide from people and hide from God. And I look back upon it today, you know, some 20 plus years later, I think in large measure it's why I resigned in 1997 from Grace Church. I, I felt like the, it was the, the, there were cracks beginning to appear and people were beginning to discover and, and my insecurity was beginning to be exposed and it was just easier for, for me to run. And God, in his infinite wisdom, placed me in a broken world pastoral experience that when the wheels came off of this church, I was now in a place where I could no longer hide, my veils no longer worked, and I finally had to face the truth about myself. But it was there I also found the truth about Christ. And I don't think my experience is that unique. You know, over the years, as I've spent time in conversation with people, and as I still look at my own spiritual journey, I think so much of the frustration and fatigue that many of us feel in our spiritual journey is connected to all the effort we invest in projecting and protecting an image of something that doesn't feel real or authentic. You know, we walk into the doors of a church on a Sunday morning and just all hell is broken loose at home, our lives, are, and yet we walk in with a smile on our face and we're fine. And huge amounts of energy is invested in, in, in projecting and protecting an image of something that we know is not real or authentic. And, and I would say it like this, wearing religious veils is exhausting for everybody, 
takes a lot of effort. Now, let's go back to the passage, and, and I'm going to skip over quickly verses 14 and 15. Now, let me read them. Um, but their minds were made dull, for to this day the same veil remains when the old covenant is read. It has not been removed, because only in Christ is it taken away. Even to this day when Moses is read, a veil covers their hearts. And, and, and what Paul is saying here is it's a prophetic description of the veil that covers the hearts of Jewish people today who embrace the old covenant and they don't recognize the need for Messiah. And, and I think it's also descriptive of anyone who's unable to see or imagine life with Jesus and lives under the illusion that we can somehow live in a way that is good enough or religious enough to garner God's favor. But I wanna, I wanna jump down to verse 16 because this is where he begins to kind of move into the real hope of the new covenant. Whenever anyone turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. It's removed. And this becomes the promise, the great promise of the new covenant. When we turn to Jesus, we confess our inadequacy, our sin. We, we confess our, the, the, the bankruptcy of our self-effort, and we release our belief that we can, can somehow please God in our own effort. We, we, we release it. And, and, and it says Jesus, at that point, just kind of strips away the veil, and we recognize that our confidence is found in Christ, and now Paul's words back in verse 12 become more clear when Paul says we are very bold, we are not like Moses. Under the new covenant, because of Jesus, the veil is removed forever. There's no longer any need for the veil. As sons and daughters of God, we're free to come into God's presence unveiled. It's not just limited to Moses. All of us have free, it has been removed. And, and remember that Paul is talking about credibility in the ways we serve Jesus as ministers of a new covenant. And what he wants us to, to draw us into is we are invited into a way of life and ministry without veils. There's no need for pretense. No need for posing and posturing uh, we, we serve openly and transparently. We, we serve boldly. I'm not worried about someone kind of removing my veil and discovering the truth because the veil is already removed and the truth is evident. See, we're free to live authentically, openly. And against this background, verses 17 and 18 become remarkable. Now the Lord is the Spirit. And where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. In Romans 8, Paul described this freedom like this. He said, for those who are led by the Spirit of God are the children of God. And the Spirit you received does not make you slaves so that you, are, so that you live in fear again. Rather, the spirit you receive brought about your adoption to sonship, and by him we cry, Abba, Father. And the spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. And if we're children, we're heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with, with Christ. In other words, 
We no longer live by fear because we're free to live by his presence. And now we begin to see the dramatic contrast of the old and new covenant. Old covenant was a ministry of death and condemnation. It brought fear. It brought a sense of failure and guilt. The new covenant, because of all that Jesus has done and the indwelling of the Spirit, removes all of that and and elevates us to the status of sons and daughters. And now we have the freedom to live authentically and honestly. I I love uh, the way one writer described it. Freedom is the boldness of no longer having to hide. When free, we have no image to protect, nothing to preserve. Free to be oneself as Jesus lives his life in and through us. And then something significant takes place in this freedom of the veil being removed. Verse 18, Paul says, we flourish there. And we all, now again, again, don't, don't miss the contrasts here. Whereas before it was Moses, now it's all of us who with unveiled faces contemplate the Lord's glory are being transformed into his image with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord who is a spirit. And what Paul says here is, is, is just a remarkable introduction to the beauty and the majesty of the new covenant. With unveiled faces, the NIV says we contemplate the Lord's glory. I'm not sure contemplate is the best choice of words there. Uh, The Greek word there carries double meaning. And it says with unveiled faces, we are now free to gaze upon the glory of the Lord. It's kind of like Moses inside the tent. When Moses kind of removed the veil, he could be in God's glory, his presence. And he says, now with unveiled faces, you and I have the same privilege of coming into God's presence and gazing upon his presence. But it it means more than that. It doesn't mean simply to gaze upon. It also means to reflect. Like looking in a mirror. And it's it's a stunning picture. It's like when we look into a mirror and we see the image of ourselves in the mirror, what we're really seeing is the image of the glory of God. Think about that. It's a stunning picture of of the presence of the glory of God being placed in our lives. It's beautifully captured by, by the New Living Translation, which says, so all of us have had that veil removed. We can both see and reflect the glory of the Lord. You see, Paul isn't just describing here just the way that we gaze by faith on the Lord, just the way we look at God or or come to God in worship and and are gazing upon the beauty and the majesty and the glory of God. It's it's that, but it's so much more. He's also describing, and this is going to be the, the whole point of this entire section of Scripture. It's the way others gaze at the reflection of Jesus in our lives. That when they bump into you and me, what they're bumping into is the very glory of Christ, the very image of Christ. 
We radiate something and, and the veil is removed and the spirit of God is working within us and, and we're being transformed, metamorphosized. We're being formed in a holistic way into the beauty and the likeness of Jesus. And, and it's not just part of us, it's all of us. And we're being shaped to look like Jesus. And, and as this is taking place, our lives, our very lives reflect the Lord's glory. And friends, I, I, let's not miss the power of the contrast that Paul is making. The glory that was once displayed in a spectacular way on Mount Sinai that everyone could observe is now being displayed in our ordinary lives. It's a stunning contrast. And, and, and a little bit later, we're going to see how he unpacks the, the implications of all of this. And, 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 and what's even more remarkable is God's glory in our lives, unlike the glory in Moses, which faded away, Paul says the glory that you and I possess is becoming increasingly brighter the longer we walk with Jesus. It's not fading. It's growing brighter. Something is being awakened in us. Something is being released in us. And, and with each day that we walk with Jesus, the glory of Christ becomes more and more and more radiant. And we will unpack the surprising ways that that glory is displayed in the chapters that follow. But this morning was just the kind of the framework to help us understand where Paul is going to lead us in chapter 4. And he's going to lead us in some remarkable places. But we have to have the language of the old and new covenant kind of settled in our way of thinking. So I'm going to stop here this morning. And I'd like you to do something for me. Uh, it may sound a bit silly, but that's okay. Uh, remember, we're not worrying about impressing anyone anymore. Yeah? The veils are removed. Uh, no need to worry about that. I want you to take a moment. I want you to just look around the room for a moment. I just want you to kind of, kind of look around the room for a moment at people. I just want you to just kind of look around and just kind of glance around the room. Here's, here's what I want you to notice. Everyone you see in this room, everyone we encounter, the Spirit of God is at work in their lives. And for those who know Christ, he's very active at healing and breaking and softening and changing and giving life. He's forming every person you look at into the likeness of Christ. Each one of your lives uniquely reflect the glory of God different places, different ways, different timetables, different circumstances, all kinds of differences, but what you, every person who knows Jesus shares in common, your life reflects the glory of God. And, and your life is, is growing brighter as you walk with Jesus. Now, when you and I began to understand that, a couple of things happened. First of all, it changes the way we see ourselves, doesn't it? My story, 
the uniqueness of my story, whatever my story is, the glory of God is being displayed and shaped in me. There's something fundamentally, distinctively good and holy about each of our lives and the uniqueness of our lives. Whatever that story is, the glory of God is is being displayed and, and increasing in our stories and it changes the ways we view ourselves. But it also changes the, view, the way we view, view one another. See, see, gone are the needs to be critical and judgmental and always evaluating and always trying to figure out and understand. We, we just allow the Spirit of God the freedom to do what he's doing in people's lives and the way he's doing it, and we're always looking not for, for the ugliness, we're looking for the glory of Christ in people. And so it releases a way of living and loving that's profound. Yeah, we'll talk a lot more about that in the weeks, weeks to come. So friends, let's, uh, let's pray together and we'll, we'll stop here. So much more I'd like to say, but staring at the clock. So Father, I realize that we have unpacked a, a, a lot this morning and there's so much more we could say. And so Father, my, my prayer this morning has been that this overview of the new covenant is, is the beginning of something that awakens a, a fresh and new perspective on life with Christ. And Father, as we now begin to step into the fuller implications of this in the weeks to come, may it inspire and awaken our imagination for the life you've called us to. May it free us from the feelings of frustration and failure and guilt and shame that so many of us live with. to live in freedom with the confidence and the hope that Jesus is growing his life within us and that we can trust him and we can trust that process that he's redeeming our lives in, in, in spectacular ways and that his glory is growing brighter all the time. And so Father we we find great hope in those words. We find great vision in those words. And so, Father, may, may they be true of our experience as we, as we move forward. In Jesus' name, amen.